Some of it is about, you know, clinging on to the good news stories and, and, and reminding yourself of those and holding them close and sharing those, uh, you know, those good outcomes with the people that you work with. Hi, my name's Dr Rachel Steen and I'm a GP registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic. Welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. On today's episode, I'm talking to the homeless health guru, Nigel Hewitt. Nigel started working with the homeless as a GP in the 90s. This was in Leicester, where he set up a full-time homeless primary healthcare service. He then went on to set up University College London's Pathway Homeless Team, which formed the foundations of what is now the national charity Pathway. Nigel is also a founding member of the Homeless and Inclusion Health Faculty, This provides education and a network of health professionals dedicated to supporting health in excluded groups. In 2006, he was awarded an OBE for his dedication and commitment to homeless services. If you remember from Lucy Chiddick in episode 5 of this podcast, she mentioned Nigel as her inspiration in her career. So I cannot wait to chat to Nigel today and hopefully share some of that inspiration with you all. So welcome, Nigel. Thank you. It's uh, great to be talking to you. So, Nigel, I mentioned a little bit in my um, introduction about Pathway. I've not really explained much about what it is. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about what it is and how it started? Yes. uh, Pathway is a national charity which was set up in about 2010 to support healthcare for homeless people and other excluded groups in the NHS. So our aim is not to be a provider organisation, but to work with the NHS to try and improve the quality of healthcare for socially excluded groups. And we particularly uh, pay attention to people experiencing homelessness, sex workers, gypsies and travellers and vulnerable migrants. Fantastic. Well, it sounds amazing. So this started with your work back in Leicester, did it? Yes, that's right. I uh, worked overseas after qualifying as a a GP in in Peru in the Amazon jungle for for three years and came back to the UK in the uh, 80s. And in the time that I was, I'd been away, homelessness had increased hugely around recession and austerity and all the things which we're seeing again now so there were suddenly lots of homeless people on the streets which was a real shock to me coming from the developing world um, back to the UK Uh, so it's something I got interested in and when I saw an opportunity of starting to work with homeless people and to provide health care that was something an opportunity which I grasped and really wanted to get on with. Yeah fantastic and is that kind of why you created Pathway? 
Um, yes, uh, well, effectively. So Pathway, the story was I began working in healthcare for homeless people in, in 1990, doing a couple of half days a week. And that gradually grew into a full-time job so that by 2000, I set up a, a PMS, personal medical services pilot for, for homeless healthcare, which involved leaving my uh, mainstream practice and working exclusively with, with homeless patients initially just as a pilot and then we got mainstream funding and that service gradually grew. So that in Leicester we, we set up a, a one-stop shop for homeless people which included a, a shelter run by the local authority with a drop-in centre run by the voluntary sector and a healthcare facility which was had the base in the drop-in centre but went out into the, into the other drop-in centres around the city and hostels to take healthcare to where homeless people were. Towards the end of my time working in Leicester, in around 2008, uh, Professor Aidan Halligan, who was Director of Education at University College London Hospital, got interested in healthcare for homeless people. Uh, he investigated the death of a, of a homeless patient who'd been brought in by the police, was examined, uh, discharged and died on the steps of the hospital, uh, a patient in whom a brain hemorrhage had been missed. And in investigating that, uh, Aidan didn't find any actionable faults, but was worried by some of the attitudes of some of the staff to homeless patients and felt that that ought to be improved. To cut a long story short, Aidan invited uh, me, having come to visit uh, at the Dawn Centre, our homeless health one-stop shop, and Trudy Boyce, a nurse colleague, down to London to see what we could do to improve healthcare for homeless people in the hospital where he was working. So we did a needs assessment, spoke to lots of uh, homeless people in the, hos in the hospital and anybody else who, who would talk to us in, in the hospital and in the community, and then set up and piloted uh, a healthcare intervention to try and improve the quality of care for, for, for patients in the hospital. Uh, we audited that and later researched it using a randomised controlled trial and demonstrated that it was an effective intervention, cost-effective, improved outcomes uh, for, for homeless patients and was generally well received by our, our partners in the, in, in the hospital. And on the back of that success, uh, Professor Aidan Halligan set up uh, the charity Pathway, supported by me as medical director and with Alex Bax as, as the chief executive. So uh, a, a small charity, but which has now grown to have uh, national influence and we we really uh, our work focuses on two things on developing uh, this pathway model uh, which has grown and we now have pathway teams in 11 uh, hospital trusts around the country from Bradford to Brighton and five of the major, major London teaching hospitals um, but the fact that but Pathway also set up and supports the Faculty for Homeless and Inclusion Health which is a, an international network of frontline workers uh, and that faculty aspires to overcome some of the isolation experienced by people working in inclusion health, uh, to bring us together in regional meetings and nationally, and to encourage all of us to work together to develop standards and to, to push locally to improve the quality of healthcare for, for people on the margins. Hmm. And why is ed education around this so important? I think those of us who have been working in this field for the last 30 years or so realised quite early on that, that we weren't trained or prepared for this, that we didn't have a common understanding of the issues, uh, we felt quite isolated and that we were battling against a system which really didn't recognise the challenges that we were addressing. So we all collectively feel uh, that there's a real need to improve the un understanding of the social determinants of health and the inclusion health 
both at an undergraduate level and uh, for, for postgraduate training, so that all of us, wherever we encounter uh, people on the margins, have a shared understanding of where they've come from, the reasons why, why they may not always be able to do what we think they should do, uh, and the reasons for some of the behaviours associated with surviving on the margins of society, so that we can do better in, in, in our healthcare provision. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what makes you particularly interested in sort of homeless patients for example i know you i know you've worked with lots of marginalized groups but so i think it did grow out of that work with marginalized groups and because i mean you know when we all when we apply to, to medical school we say we're interested in science we're interested in the human body and we want to help people um and then we get ground into a system which sort of beats all of that idealism out of us but but lots of us meant that and still do mean it and and when looking at uh, patients who are most in need of health uh, of help it, it seemed to me that people who were homeless and and destitute were the people that, that who could perhaps boast uh, most benefit from my from my support um, and who you know we all know about the inverse care law were least likely to get the health care that they needed so it seemed like a good place to focus my, my my attentions yeah okay would you having been a gp um helping homeless patients have any sort of particular top tips for managing patients so i think the interaction particularly with a, a new homeless patient is is slightly different from the interaction with uh, a new patient in the leafy suburbs where, where, where i had my mainstream um, medical practice because we know that people who become homeless and particularly people who spend a long time uh, being homeless are, have almost invariably experienced adverse childhood experiences, uh, have had uh, difficult upbringings, are likely to uh, have personality issues, complex trauma and may have a combination of physical illness with mental illness and addictions, the trimorbidity that, that we talk about in the literature. Uh, people in those circumstances are likely to present particular challenges. The key to an effective healthcare intervention is to uh, establish a trusting relationship with the person in front of you. And that can be difficult if you both have assumptions about what you want to get out of that consultation. Um, And not uncommonly, your first contact with a patient will involve the benzo conversation or some other conversation about something that the, the patient wants and needs and realizes that you're you're the, you're the route to and that isn't a thing that, that you are, are willing to willing to do um, and what i've found in establishing those trusting relationships is is that skepticism is respected but cynicism isn't so saying to a person you're just an addict and you only want these tablets to abuse and, 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 and to sell doesn't go down well because that's immediately dissing and disrespecting that person and, and it's, not, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a warm way to start, the, the, um, uh, to start the, the conversation. However, you can say to a person in those circumstances, I understand what you're saying. It sounds like you really have a, 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 an issue with, with, with benzodiazepines. 
Um, unfortunately, we have a, a protocol which doesn't allow us to, to prescribe this sort of medication for, for a new patient. And the reason for that is, as I'm sure you're aware, and this isn't something I'm accusing you of, but there's lots of people out there who do try to obtain prescriptions and then sell them on and, and, and misuse them. Of course, that isn't something that I'm saying is, 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 is your situation, but I don't have any means of telling the people who are wanting to abuse medication from, from, pe from people who aren't. And for that reason, we have a, have a protocol. Now, obviously, if you have a, an addiction problem, then there's a, there's, a, there's a pathway we can go down. We'll start with a urine test and we'll understand you know, what, 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 what the parameters are for, for, the, for the conversation and we'll, we'll work towards getting you into some sort of treatment program if that's what you want. So it's that sort of warm and understanding and empathic scepticism uh, rather than cynicism which I think is, is the key to a, an effective relationship. Mm. And that brings in a lot of what pathway are trying to achieve in terms of person-centred care and patient-centred care. Absolutely so one of the challenges particularly for patients coming into hospital is that often they've had a negative previous experience. Uh, they've had people assuming that they are going to be disruptive uh, the clinicians looking after them, the nurses and doctors may also have previously experienced that sort of disruptive behaviour from, from homeless patients. So both sides of that relationship are set up for conflict, and particularly in the context of, of zero tolerance and all this stuff around, you know, we're in charge and you have to do what we tell you, uh, which is what patients hear from, uh, from the sort of zero tolerance posters, uh, sets everybody up for conflict. So if there is in the pathway context a team of people who really understand where you're coming from understand your your challenges and can help to support you in the hospital it can help to smooth over all, all of those relationships it's we often use the uh, the analogy of, of a palliative care team so uh, if a patient's admitted to hospital as an emergency under the physicians or, or the surgeons and it becomes apparent that there's a palliative care issue then whichever specialist is looking after that uh, that person will call in a palliative care team, which is a multidisciplinary group of, of people from a wide variety of professional backgrounds who can support the patient, ask the right questions, understand where they're coming from, support them in the hospital, advise a clinical team about how best to manage that patient, and also will have the uh, the networks, the contacts back out into the community to facilitate the discharge and uh, support the patient once once they're discharged. So pathway teams work in a similar way, uh, but you don't have to have a pathway team to have those empathic relationships mm. with, uh, with 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 patients who are who are homeless in in the hospital. The first question always to ask is, have you got somewhere safe to go when you leave the hospital? asking that question early on leads the patient to have some uh, understanding that you, you want to try and tackle their, their, their problems and the next question is often is there anybody out there in the community who's supporting you do you have a key worker is there a street outreach worker is there somebody that we could contact on your behalf so that we could start to plan for you for, for, for you leaving the hospital brilliant these patients are obviously when they're in hospital complex patients and you mentioned a little bit at the beginning that there was some poor attitudes to homeless patients. Are you seeing things are improving? Yes. Most of the problem is with the system rather than the people. Mm. Uh, and in times of, of particularly of, of, of austerity and shrinking budgets and increasing pressure for efficiency, all of the pressure is about 
avoiding people coming into hospital in the first place and when they're in getting them out as quickly as possible and that's understandable and you can see where that's come from and unnecessary delays obviously aren't, aren't helpful to, to the system but when you've got a person whose needs are complex and don't fit with a simple sausage machine approach to getting you in getting you treated and getting you out then driving somebody through that rapid system as quickly as possible may not be the most effective way of improving their health and, and makes and sets them up for future readmissions and, 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 and coming back through the cycle of healthcare. So sometimes one of the most useful things we can do um, working with a pathway team in the hospital is to just push back a little bit on the, on the system. Uh, the medically fit for discharge is something which often comes up uh, and medically fit for discharge means from the doctor's point of view our work here is done so I've seen patients who are unable to stand being described as medically fit for discharge by which again the doctors mean we've done all we've done all that we can not that we have a plan for a safe transfer of care for this patient need to consider that if you send this patient out they're probably going to end up back on the streets because we you know they don't have adequate support and if that happens given their medical condition they're going to be back in through a and e and, and, and back on your ward again and sometimes what we're doing is encouraging the patient to understand the system that they're working in commonly somebody come will come into hospital say a gastrointestinal bleed they'll be they'll be starved they'll be told you're going to get an endoscopy uh, and then some other emergency comes up and, and then later on in the day somebody passing by the foot of the bed will say oh it's postponed it's happening tomorrow because of their previous negative experiences they will assume that that's because it's because it's them it's if I wasn't homeless you wouldn't be treating me like this so sometimes it's just saying to people yeah no actually the system really is this rubbish that is just what happens and sometimes emergencies come up and you know we just don't have the capacity to, to deal with everybody in the way that, that, that we liked and you know we're really sorry and you know can we get your sandwich and a, and a, and a, and a newspaper and uh, we'll, we'll again you know help to encourage the patient to stay rather than stomp off in a half and then uh, just need to be readmitted again days later mm-hmm. I read something the other day and I knew I knew admissions in homeless patients was high mm-hmm. um, or, and readmissions but I read something like 60 it was 60 times more likely for a homeless person to be admitted to hospital than um, someone generally in the population yes, I think and I find that that huge. is extraordinary I think that the methodology in that paper was flawed yeah. actually we've, okay. been, we've been having some discussion with the authors <laughs> they've compared apples and pears basically right okay so uh, homeless patients certainly do attend A&E more commonly than house patients uh, the multiplier is probably more like five or six right times. okay the standardized mortality rate for homeless patients is about 10 times that of the housed population which is to say that any given year a homeless person is 10 times more likely to die than an age and gender matched uh, Mm. person who's housed Uh, it's about eight times for men and it's about 12 times for for women compared compared to Mm. uh, women who are housed so we know that the healthcare risks uh, of the mortality risks of homelessness are, are hugely greater than those of the rest of us, mm. and that naturally does result in a lot more attendances at A and E and a lot more, a lot more healthcare, uh, mm. a lot more emergency healthcare. Mm. And one of the beneficial uh, effects of a, a pathway intervention is that we see a shift from uh, unplanned emergency healthcare to to planned care. 
the, there's a lot of work looking for cash savings from improving the quality of care for, for people on the margins, which are, we are increased, although often that is the only argument in town if you're trying to develop some sort of innovation, you know, show me how this is this produces savings yeah increasingly we're feeling in the field that this really isn't a reasonable way of of of, of, of trying to plan care uh, we know we can improve outcomes we know we can address health inequalities we know we can improve housing outcomes and improve the health of, of homeless people but often that doesn't save the system money because we are identifying more healthcare needs, we're giving people more treatment, we're, we're doing more things for people which, which costs more money. Uh, we can aspire to, over time, reduce the amount of emergency healthcare that people need uh, and so we get better value for that individual from the healthcare investment. Uh, but actually saving money, uh, producing cashable savings, isn't likely to be something that we can really achieve for complex people who have been homeless for a long period of time and have been unwell for a long period of time mm-hmm. um, I think I'm realizing that as well generally on the health inequalities agenda on the, mm. these discussions is that the cost effectiveness argument almost a sort of quick win situation it isn't really the 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 way to play it really um, which I think is really really interesting you mentioned previously Nigel about patients knowing the system I thought that was really really interesting because quite a lot of the homeless patients I've met um know what they need um and but they just feel like they can't get it mm-hmm. the homeless people are fabulous negotiators um and they've got a, they've had a lot more practice at it than than, than we have uh and because their lives are pared down to meeting their immediate needs so they're quite low down on you know Maslow's hierarchy uh, all of their focus is is on what they feel they need next and of course the way what we know from all of the research and all of our experience is that the way to build that therapeutic relationship is to meet homeless people where they're at so both physically going to where they are going to the hostels going to the drop-in centers going out onto the streets and also starting with the needs that they feel need to be addressed so starting with what with what they want it's it's useless to try and say i really want to arrange for your chronic leg ulcer to be addressed if what that patient needs is uh, a letter or a note for their for their benefits or to start to address their addiction issues you, you need to start with their priorities and once you've worked on their priorities people will be very happy to accept the hepatitis b vaccination or get the bloodborne virus screening or whatever else is on your list of, of, of things that you want to do so starting where they're at is is really important the other sort of key thing that i've learned about negotiating with all patients but particularly with with patients who are very focused on 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 a particular outcome is to decide beforehand to know yourself what your boundaries are and getting into a sort of live negotiation where you're not really sure what you're going to do you will always lose under those circumstances and once you start on a pathway of just this once prescribing or we'll sort you out a few sleeping tablets and we'll see see how we uh, how we go you're then hooked onto an endless loop of well you did it for me last time and now I can't do without them what's going to happen next uh, so and knowing yourself what your boundaries are and what you will do and what you won't do and then having clear and non-judgmental 
arguments to explain why you will and won't do what 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 the what the person's asking for is is is, is a useful place to start. And that I imagine applies for the team as well. Absolutely. So it's really important that everybody understands. Everybody has, everybody's playing to the same rules. So that you, and one way of doing that is to meet together regularly and share discussions uh, around uh, clinical challenges that you're meeting. Mm. Uh, in the Pathway team in London and Brighton, we've had some funding which has allowed us to set up reflective practice. So this is having a, a trained psychologist with an experience of working in our world to support a monthly meeting uh, in which we can discuss particular challenges which we've had with with patients. So this isn't quite discussing sort of uh, clinical issues, it's more about understanding the ways in which people with complex trauma and personality issues can affect how we feel about our interactions and how we interact with each other because people who have experienced uh, complex trauma often will split a team, will present different faces to different members of the team, uh, be one person's favourite patients and the other the, the other person's bet noir, and that can really fracture teams. So having somebody from the outside with an understanding of personality issues who can support you in a discussion about how to manage complex patients can be very helpful. I can imagine, as you say, it can be sort of fractious, but I can imagine it can also be quite empowering and bonding when you feel like you're doing it well yes absolutely and and sharing good stories with with each other and and it it is important to keep reminding ourselves of the successes that we've had and often they're quite small gains they're incremental gains they're building a relationship no quick wins not often quick wins in in this field and the other problem is that you tend to be surrounded by your failures so if you're working uh in this sort of area and say in a hostel or a drop-in center the people that you see and who keep coming back are those for whom all of your plans to help them to move on and get out of the of, of this situation haven't worked the people i think the majority of people uh, who are patients for a while and then uh, you know their, their, their lives start to, to sort out and they move out of temporary accommodation and they get back into work that you, you tend not to see those people mm. and so it, it's easy to get a very negative view of likely outcomes for the people that's fascinating and how do you, how do you cope with that it is well it is it's wearing and it's a potential source of burnout so some of it is, is about understanding that situation. Some of it is about, you know, clinging on to the good news stories and, and, and reminding yourself of those and holding them close and sharing those, uh, you know, those good outcomes with the people that you work with. Yeah, well, fantastic. So I imagine that helping any marginalised group has an impact on helping other marginalised groups as well. Would you say I'm, I'm that's sure the case? That's, I'm sure that's right. So we, we often talk about homeless patients being... The canary in the mine. They're mm. often the people who identify gaps in the system and ways in which the system isn't working. So certainly in a hospital system, they're, they're a good stress test for, for how integrated we are, to how well we work with colleagues in social care and housing in the voluntary sector, how well the hospital is care is integrated with the community care and, and, and vice versa. And homeless patients will often highlight those gaps they, they often also in, in a community setting are, are, are the people who start to demonstrate the emerging healthcare problems. So uh, the HIV, uh, epidemic hep C particularly, 
uh, crack cocaine, the spice epidemic, problems with alcohol and the consequences of the reduction in prices of, of, of alcohol and the health consequences of that are all areas in which homelessness as the sharp end of health inequalities and the social the negative consequences of the social determinants of health uh, are, are a very good way, a very good place to look if you want to see the direction that society is going in. Yeah, so it's like almost quite a good system marker yeah. for how things are how things are going. Absolutely, yeah. and we often say that if we can make the healthcare system work well for homeless patients, it would work very well indeed for the rest of us who, who don't have the same challenges and difficulties and only need to integrate one or two modalities of, of, of healthcare. Mm. And to make the system work better, I know Pathway's doing a load of stuff around this, but where do you think things really do need to change? Is it at a local level? Is it at a top level, sort of civic, political level? It needs to change at, in all of those places. Mm. It needs to change at, at all levels in society. So we're... We're working within a political discourse which is, for the last 10 years, has, has been all about austerity, has been all about cutting benefits. So one of the consequences of the political drive to austerity has been universal credit and all the terrible things that that does to people. Uh, it's been driving people off uh, long-term disability benefits and trying to get them back into the healthcare system but in a very brutal way uh, and being very unsympathetic to uh, vulnerable migrants and people whose um, right to, to, to healthcare treatment is, is, is hard to establish. And that's producing large sections of society who are driven away from healthcare provision. So one level we've got that sort of political discourse, but we've still got a very siloed system in which social care and housing care and healthcare have separate budgets uh, which are under pressure so all parts of that system are playing a game in which we're all trying to defend our budgets and find reasons why dealing with this particular individual's problems are, are should come under somebody else's budget. I have some hope that the move towards uh, STPs and the, the, the move towards sort of more regional planning of healthcare in collaboration with housing and social care does produce an, an opportunity to, to look at the big picture. And when we look overseas to uh, models of, of uh, integrated care, some of those come from places like Boston, Massachusetts, where there is an elected mayor who has overall responsibility for the healthcare budget and the housing budget and the social care budget and the policing budget and 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 uh, you know looking after businesses and the well-being of his local community and from that perspective it doesn't make any sense to have people stuck in hospital for longer than they should or discharged from hospital to the streets uh, or long arguments uh, with the legal backing between housing and social care and the healthcare system as to who should be paying for the healthcare of a person who isn't going to go anywhere and, and if their healthcare needs aren't met will end up back on the streets again and reducing the quality of the environment for everybody who, who lives locally. So that sort of regional perspective I think has some potential for improving things but it does in the end come down to local relationships between housing and social care and the healthcare system which is what pathway teams do on the ground is negotiate those relationships but if the mood music can be set nationally 
uh, by opportunities such as the Homelessness Reduction Act, which changes the relationship uh, around assessments for, for homeless people, then good things can come locally from those good relationships. How does that do that? Sorry. So the Homelessness Reduction Act was uh, uh, an interesting bit of legislation which crisis actually were very instrumental in, in driving through and it produces new uh, responsibilities on, on local authorities. We know from research done by crisis, uh, for example, there was a paper called um, No One Turned Away, which sent uh, actors, uh, people who were homeless, had been homeless and were actors, as uh, mystery shoppers into housing uh, departments all, all over the UK and found that despite the person presenting with an obvious backstory of clear uh, clear need and being having a local connection and being vulnerable and priority need in almost every case the person was turned away without being helped uh, the the most heartrending story was 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 somebody who was presenting to, to housing departments in their pajamas as a person with an adult with learning disability and her story was that she couldn't get back into her flat her backstory if anybody asked her the question was that her mother had died uh, the bills weren't being paid. Eventually, the landlord had changed the lock, so this uh, woman with learning disability uh, was 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 street was street homeless. It nowhere was 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 she offered even temporary accommodation. Uh, one place she was directed to a bank of computers to to enter in her homelessness application. Uh, she was illiterate. Told them that. Uh, um, was told, well, you'll need to come back with somebody that can help you. So a really brutal response. Uh, which is comes from a brutalizing system, which uh, the, so the the whole game often is to turn people away from housing departments, find reasons why they don't get the opportunity to exercise their their, their rights. The Homelessness Reduction Act produces a new duty uh, to assess anybody who may be homeless within the next fifty six days, rather than the previous twenty eight to assess them irrespective of local connection, so to do the assessment first and then make a plan afterwards. But it also puts a new duty on public bodies, which includes hospitals, A&E departments, walk-in centres, to identify and refer, with their consent, people who are homeless or at risk of homelessness to the local authority to try to, to ensure that that, re, uh, that assessment is done. So that's about trying to improve the relationship. And we are seeing on the ground that, that it is indeed... Uh, resulting in a more collaborative relationship between the healthcare system and the housing system. That's fantastic. And do you think someone has to hit sort of rock bottom, become homeless to get the help? Or do well, you ideally think... not. So, so one of the reasons behind the fifty-six day um, uh, concept with the Homelessness Reduction Act is that people who are at risk of becoming homelessness or becoming homeless within that period will be assessed and help to prevent them from becoming homeless. So there is a big push to, to really work with people to try and prevent homelessness because it's hugely inefficient to wait till people are actually rough sleeping and then try to get them back into society. It's much better to try and keep them in the, in the, in the property where they are and, and support them to, to, to avoid them becoming homeless in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, you, Nigel, fight, obviously have identified problems in the system and have already told me some stories of just some really brutal and harrowing mm. things that have happened to people and how do you challenge that status quo personally and kind of as an organization as a charity so the first thing is to uh is to pick your battles so it is 
difficult if you're constantly fighting loudly for every about every situation that you that that, that you encounter you're you t- in time you can get disregarded so it's it's a it's a it's a difficult balance but but if you become oh it's just that person that's always banging on about this stuff um that, that then then people can can mm. cannot hear what you're saying so picking your battles being clear why you why it's important why there's well from what we can do as clinicians is often about the healthcare aspect of 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 of, of, of a person that, that we're dealing with so it's it's about understanding that for example making arguments about justice or equity for a person who has no recourse to public funds for, for example somebody who is a a failed asylum seeker who's been through the whole system and has been judged and has had legal support and 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 it's still the system says no we aren't going to help you making those arguments to a housing department are are fruitless however if that individual has significant care needs then you can still make a referral to under the care act to the social services department and if all else fails ask for a human rights act assessment to ensure that this individual's human rights aren't being violated by leaving them destitute on the streets with significant care needs so it's about understanding how the system works and picking your battles and using the right argument under the right circumstances to support the individual Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, as advocates for our patients, I suppose once we know the system, we're in quite a good position to be able to do that. Did you say? Absolutely. There's, there's lots of circumstances in which, uh, you know, providing a, a letter to explain why a person's medical conditions uh, make them vulnerable and priority needs can can, can be hugely influential. Uh, and there's lots of other circumstances in which. Uh, as as clinicians, we can help to influence uh, the system around that individual's care, but also more widely to, to set up systems to, to improve the quality of care for people on the margins. And how would you recommend health professionals or just professionals generally working, um, not necessarily in the health system, find out more about inclusion health pathways, find out more about how to help marginalised groups? So there's an increasing amount of information out there. Uh, there's your Fair Health uh, website and organisation, which is a good source of, of a basic understanding of, of, of the issues and, and with links to, to how to find out more. Uh, the Pathway website, pathway.org.uk, has a lot about our, our charity, and that includes a link to the Faculty for Homeless and Inclusion Health, which is a free-to-join organisation, which I'd encourage anybody who's interested in, in the area to join uh, that will ensure that you're informed about regional meetings about our annual conference uh, and you get a, an email every two or three weeks with the latest news from the world of inclusion health and uh, training opportunities websites some jobs come up on that on that website so it's a good way of, of, of getting into the, the network uh, and starting to meet up virtually and uh, in reality with with other people with with a shared interest uh, and overcoming that isolation and, and coming together with people who are interested in this in this field is a really good way of 
sustaining your one's enthusiasm. Okay, fantastic. Thank you, Nigel. You've already told us quite a lot of things that you've learned along the way, but would there be anything that you've learned along the way that you would say has been particularly key? I think one of the things which is often said in our world is we're all just two paychecks away from the streets, which is a, a sort of common phrase. It's often used when, when we're fundraising. I think it's important to understand that that actually isn't true. So even if I uh, lost my job and became physically and, and mentally unwell, I'm very fortunate to have been brought up by loving parents. I have a strong inner feeling of self-worth and I've got a network of family and friends who I know would support me uh, and they all have their boundaries and limits to which they wouldn't go. But <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a long way short of, of, of being, of risking destitution mm. in, in, in the near future. What we know from the research is that people and this particularly come from Suzanne Fitzpatrick's research, and she's well worth Googling. Professor Suzanne Fitzpatrick at Harriet Watt University has done some very interesting work from a sort of sociological perspective, looking at pathways into homelessness. And what her research shows is that a very common pathway begins in very early childhood with adverse childhood experiences, with physical and, and often sexual abuse, with being, with being brought up in poverty. And that's really the core of it. Being brought up in poverty by stressed pe parents damages your brain. And that results in somebody who is likely to have complex trauma, is likely to start to experience mental health issues in their early teen years, which they will then start to self-medicate with drugs, with alcohol, with sniffing glue, with petrol, with novel psychoactive substances. That is then going to result in more serious mental illness, in suicide attempts, in self-harm, and then in physical illness. So for somebody to end up in the situation of, of, of being rough sleeping, and particularly the people who end up on the streets for serious periods of time, they've got a long trajectory that goes back a long way. Uh, and that really leads me on to one of my other particular hobby horses, which is that we absolutely know the trajectory that results from bringing children up in poverty. Here in the UK, the number of children in poverty is increasing hugely. We're closing Sure Start centres. We're generating the, uh, the next 30 or 40 years of severely damaged individuals who are going to have miserable lives which will end before their time in a welter of physical illness and, and, and addictions and we're doing that now to ourselves as a society so really that that is uh, there's a kind of key message from from all of this children in poverty is what generates long-term homelessness and that is really what we should be addressing gosh and the way that we can do that well so, I mean, this, this I guess, again is one of the problems of working in, in healthcare. It's that sort of, um, uh, I wouldn't start from here problem. The healthcare system tends to see people at the point in which they are physically and mentally unwell and, 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 and addicted. We are seeing the consequences of decisions which were made 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I think what we can most usefully do is use uh, that knowledge and, and, and our power and our, and our research as healthcare professionals 
to highlight the damage that comes from children being brought up in poverty. What we do about that is, I think, form uh, alliances, which we're increasingly aspiring to do, reach from outside the sort of fairly narrow specialty of, of inclusion healthcare to to clinicians working in poor areas. The, the Deep End project in, in Glasgow and, and other projects are around the UK uh, trying to bring together and encourage and enthuse and empower clinicians working in uh, in, in in poor estates in, in uh, with with people who are housed but who are, are are experiencing the same problems, so that we can help support people under under those circumstances. Um, there's a fabulous project in in Manchester led by Laura Nielsen, which we heard about at our, our conference last year, uh, w- which is about uh, they call it focused healthcare, and it's applying a lot of the learning which we've got from the homelessness sector, which is about what is important is that relationship. The important thing is individual care coordination supported by a multi-agency team. Uh, and what they do in, in a number of practices across uh, Oldham and Greater Manchester is it's a form of social prescribing uh, and uh, they call it focused healthcare. And it's a fabulous team of really feisty, mostly women from a variety of different professional backgrounds, nurses, health visitors, social workers, uh, who uh, will accept a referral for struggling families and will go in and do whatever it takes to sort them out. It's it's not unlike the Burtzorg system in uh, the Netherlands, which is a similar district nurse-based uh, freeing up powerful professions professionals to do whatever it takes to help sort an individual and their family out so that rather than saying well I just do leg ulcers and that's my thing and that's all I need to do uh, if you can actually say well what, you know what 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 is what is the difficulty what was the problem do we need to sort out your benefits do we need to get an appeal into the housing do we need to find you a mother and toddler group for your kids to go to uh, do we need to try and get you into some sort of um, behavioral management program to help you support your children uh, do, do, we, do we need to find a nursery what, 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 whatever it takes to to help to sort that individual out uh, and that's a fabulous uh, fabulously powerful intervention which can be triggered by a healthcare professional is sustained by them ensuring they've got the funding for that very specific kind of social prescribing uh, and, and also has the prospect of tackling that issue of children being brought up in, in, in poverty and, and, and widening their horizons and improving their outlook. Oh, well, thank, yeah, no, thank you, Nigel. I'm so pleased you mentioned Nora Nielsen because she's actually um, someone I'm interviewing in the next few weeks for this podcast. So oh, yeah, she, this will follow on really nicely from your podcast. She is my favourite. She's one amazing. of my favourite people in the world. Yeah. She's absolutely brilliant. Um, absolutely amazing. Um, so... You mentioned a little bit there about um, the Deep End Network of um, GPs and um, we talked earlier a little bit about burnout and um, sometimes the difficulty in, in working this in, in this area of health. Do you think that there's ways we can support professionals better? Yes, there's a lot more that we could do. A lot of this, a lot of it is about supporting each other, about seizing opportunities to get together and share experiences and 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 support each other for example i joined a a, a barlint group for, for for a while and, and found that to be a very uh, helpful way of 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 
maintaining my mental health and, and, and sharing clinical challenges with, uh, uh, with, with, with colleagues. Uh, the faculty has regional meetings and national meetings, which is helpful. But also day to day in, in our own practice, I, I think there's things that we can do. Um, one area is, is if you're trying to develop any kind of innovation, uh, it's finding ways of making that part of your job. So often you'll see an opportunity uh, and, and want to build the evidence to, for example, provide an outreach clinic to, to a local hostel. So you'll need to gather the data and, and persuade colleagues that this is a, a useful way of, 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 of focusing the attention of, of, of your practice. But there's a limit to how much of that you can continue to do long term, entirely on a voluntary basis and, and in your own time. So that you can possibly find ways of negotiating an admin session or uh, finding funding for a leadership project which allows you to, to, to pursue a particular area of interest or developing a, a, an academic uh, a area of, of interest. Anything in which you can, any, any ways in which you can find developing innovations, uh, making that part of your job rather than something you're trying to, to cram into the margins of an otherwise busy life. I think portfolio careers are, are, are increasingly uh, recognised and acknowledged as, as, as a valid way of, 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 of working and I think they can be a very good way of balancing up your life so that you don't become too overwhelmed by, by any one aspect of, of, of what you're doing and being mindfully aware of that, uh, being aware of, of, of how you're feeling and looking after yourself first, you know the old analogy of mm. putting on your own oxygen mask before you help, uh, uh, help mm. uh, fellow passengers is really important. There's, 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 there's another issue in our field, which is just perhaps worth touching on, which is a concept of heroic narcissism. So uh, working on the margins does tend to encourage a mindset in which we start to feel as though we are the only people who can solve this, this problem by working heroically long hours, by always going far beyond uh, you know, what, what's required of us. Uh, we are the only people who understand the patients that we're dealing with and we are the only people who can resolve the situation. And I think the difficulty with that is that people who acquire that mindset start to produce dysfunctional organisations uh, and it's a common problem which I've observed in this field that we start to adopt some of the chaos which we internalise from, 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 from our patients and we get good at dealing with crises so we could build crises around ourselves and are constantly fighting fires some of which we've set ourselves in the first place so uh, it's, a, it's, it's a kind of um, inspiration is great and you meet some fabulously inspirational people but there's also a place for the methodical plodders and doing something that's worthwhile rather than feeling you have to do everything being good enough most of the time I think is kind of where I've aimed for throughout my career rather than being fabulous all of the time because you just can't do that Mm. Well, Nigel, I'm not sure about that from the people I've spoken to about <laughs> you, whether you're just good enough. But anyway, um, um, on that note, I just want to um, ask you a little bit about whether there's anything new on the horizon for you um, in terms of pathway inclusion health, um, anything you're doing. 
Well, we're working to expand the pathway network at the moment. So mm-hmm. we're, we're developing, uh, a, with support of the Health Foundation, a, a social franchising model, uh, which is an experimental model to, to, to see if by getting, uh, by building into the funding of pathway teams, uh, a small amount of funding to come back to the central charity to support them with quality control and ongoing training and support, uh, we can build build our network and, and, and try to in, improve at, at pace the number of hospitals uh, which have pathway teams. So so that's probably our, the, the, the main focus of what we're aspiring to mm. do next. Oh, fantastic. Well, good luck with that. And <laughs> um, I always finish, Nigel, with asking you your one book that you would recommend um, for someone interested in um, tackling health and inequity. Um, what would that one book be? I've been thinking about this. So, so there's, there's two things. If you're really interested in the in the practicalities, the, the nitty gritty of, of, of what to do, uh, a, a, a publication by the by the Faculty for Homeless and Inclusion Health, uh, which is Homeless and Inclusion Health Standards for Commissioners and Service Providers, which is available on the on the internet. You can download it, and uh, it's available on the Pathway website, and that takes you through a very practical uh, approach to how to address health inequalities in a variety of different clinical settings. Uh, in terms of, of sort of literary inspiration uh the book which i've read which i think most articulates what it's like for a person living on the margins of society uh, is a book called even the dogs by john mcgregor uh, and it's it's a beautifully written book it's a fine piece of literature but it also describes what it's like to live uh, in and out of homelessness, in temporary accommodation, in squats and, uh, and, 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 and cheap inner city accommodation and what it's like to be a person trying to survive in that situation. So uh, for somebody that wanted to get in the, inside the head of, of the heads of people living on the margins, even the, even the Dogs by John McGregor is what I'd recommend. Okay, thank you, Nigel. I will put links to both of those in the show notes for the podcast. And my final question is always a genie question where you get one wish to um, improve um, the health of um, our nation. What would it? What would that one be, wish be? I think that is something which we are working on at the moment, which is to get inclusion health education into the undergraduate curriculum for all of the healthcare professions. I think if we all had a shared understanding of the social determinants of health, uh, so that the whole system could then be directed towards trying to improve the health of the people who need it most, I think that would have the, the greatest impact for the healthcare system and for society at large. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you, um, Nigel, that's great. Nigel, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you. There's so much that we've spoken about that I'm going to take away today. Largely um, things about sort of making sure that I think about some of those key lessons about seeing um, homeless patients that you talked about um, and sort of acceptable scepticism rather Mm. than cynicism and also forming that network of um, people um, interested in this area. Not just professionals really, but also um, feeling inspired by the day day to day and feeling inspired by individual patient encounters and stories that I hear as well so thank you so much um, for sparing your time um, and I look forward to sharing the conversation with you all um, so thank take you care. it's been a pleasure 
Thank you all for listening. You will be able to find further episodes on the Fair Health website. If you haven't been on there already, please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk. It is a fantastic educational resource. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter, at FairHealthUK or at RMSteen. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.